Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Jen White. Oh, death have Oh, at least at first, Black culture and the Gothic might not seem all that connected. But our next guest encourages her readers to dig a little deeper. Leela Taylor is creative director at the Brooklyn Public Library and author of the new book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. In it, she argues that the terror at the heart of the American Gothic stories and the Gothic aesthetic is the result of the racial oppression that continues to haunt this country. Taylor is a self-described Afro-Gothicist. Don't worry, that was a new term for us, too. And Darkly is part history lesson, part memoir, and part cultural criticism. One blurb for the book says Darkly, quote, takes us on a path that connects the Middle Ages, Edgar Allan Poe, the transatlantic slave trade, Afropunk, Prince, Black Lives Matter, and Hot Topic. Leela Taylor, welcome to Reset. Hello, thanks for having me. Let's start with some baseline definitions. The term goth is really broad and has different subcultures, but for you, what is goth and what is an Afro-Gothicist? Well, goth for me is pretty specific. It's a subculture, it's a music genre, and the subculture that came from that, starting around like 1979-ish, 78, 79. So the gothic is much, much broader in terms. While goth is a music genre and a subculture, the gothic is an adjective. It's a description for a kind of aesthetic, a kind of perspective, a sort of dark romanticism that can be applied to just about you know anything, art, architecture, music, literature. So for me, when I was working on this book, goth was just too restrictive because it was just too much about the specific kind of music. And the gothic was much broader and bigger and could encompass all sorts of things throughout sort of history, as opposed to just Joy Division and The Cure, you know, and stuff. And what does that aesthetic look like for you? You know, you're not wearing black lipstick right now. (laughs) But, you yeah. know, there, there there is an aesthetic that's there, too. Uh, yeah, well, uh, black is probably the, the one sort of common denominator in all things sort of gothic. There, I mean, the, the in terms of fashion, in terms of style, it's sort of a mix of sort of mourning, uh, wear, uh, Victorianism, medievalism. Um, it's very much sort of a past-looking sort of fashion, but it's also punk. Um, it's also... Um, uh, you know, anything sort of um, dark and sort of spooky, I suppose, is the general aesthetic of things. I mean, personally, I, you know, I don't wear a lot of makeup in the morning. I have a job, so I tend to dress a little <laughs> more minimalistically, you know. I don't have uh, a ring on every finger like I used to back in the day. But, you know, also for me, it's, it's much more about one's perspective in the world and the way one perceives things, the way one kind of walks through life rather than just sort of the color of their lipstick. It's more of a, an attitude right. uh, than a fashion. How did you first encounter goth? Through the music. You know, I grew up in Detroit, uh, which had really great record stores and really great radio stations. 
And I had a friend who was really into music and was always, always discovering kind of the newest thing. I guess I was about 13-ish when I discovered Susie and the Banshees. And I was always kind of a, a creepy kid. <laughs> I was always <laughs> really fascinated by death and by ghosts and spirits and all of the sort of mysterious things in the world. And um, when I heard the music, it just sort of fit my personality. So I think that's kind of how it started. And because I was kind of young, I wasn't going to clubs or anything, but I started listening to the music and getting into the bands. And then as I got a little bit older, a little more into the fashion and the style of it, like a lot of young black girls who felt alternative growing up, you were attracted to Denise Huxtable's character on The Cosby Show. And you mentioned you grew up in Detroit, a city that I think really embodies black goth. Can you talk about your upbringing? Oh, yes, Denise Huxtable. I wanted to be Denise so bad. <laughs> um, and I think one of the reasons why I loved her so much is because, um, you know, she looked like me and she sounded like me and she was different and she was, you know, she was a good kid. But she was odd and she had a fantastic fashion sense. So it was the first time I saw on TV, you know, a family that looked like mine and a person that I wanted to be, you know. And in Detroit, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about Detroit is its nickname is the Renaissance City. And like my high school that I went to was, was Renaissance and our symbol was the Phoenix. So it has this sort of waves of decline and rising and decline and rising, you know, from the, the riots or the uh, uprisings in the 60s to the you know, economic downturns and the sort of resurgence that's happening now. So it's a city that's used to kind of burning up in flames and then rising up again, uh, which is a very kind of gothic and romantic kind of notion. And when I was growing up there, there were still a lot of abandoned houses and a lot of ruins. So you sort of go through the streets and seeing these gorgeous, beautiful, old, you know, Victorian mansions that have just been left to decay. And I think there's a there's a mixture of the French history with it that adds a little bit of something extra to it. It's right on the border of America. Canada is right across the river. So there's sort of a strangeness to the city and a music to the city, which adds to the flavor. You know, and I think it's it's a very cool city. <laughs> I, know that's I agree. Really I agree. I but, used to uh, live in Detroit, and I yes. and hearing your descriptions, I'm like, yes, the abandoned mansions with ballrooms. Yes. Um. Yes. I yeah. I, I could feel that. How is blackness inherently goth? That's mm, one of your I arguments think, in the book. I think it's interesting. When I was first starting this process, I was looking specifically at um, black people in the goth scene and the goth music scene. And what I realized is that black goths are just like any other kind of goths. We all kind of dress the same and we listen to the same kind of music. But the difference between a white goth or a Mexican goth or a Japanese goth or whoever is that you're a black person living in America and going through those spaces as a black person. And I listened to, I was listening to Strange Fruit. Billie Holiday's version of the song Strange Fruit. And I thought, this is the most goth song I've ever heard. And then I was realizing that there is something in the inherent history of Black people in America, of the sort of residual trauma left from the slave trade, um, from the continuation of repression, 
and the art and the music and the spirit that's come from all of that, how we've grown from that and what we've made from that history. And I realized that's what's Gothic. You know, that's what sort of the American Gothic is, is taking all of this horror, this everyday horror that we've experienced historically and turning it into something that we can play with and something that we can create with and tell our own stories with. And to me, that's sort of the the American horror story is the result of that, of chattel slavery, really. And there's Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, and then the movie Candyman set here in Chicago's Cabrini-Green. What are the connections and where are the, where's the goth that's there? Yeah. It's an interesting trope in horror movies is this idea of being based on a true story. And somehow the idea of something frightening, having its sources in reality adds to this level of anxiety and tension. Um, you know, ghosts are one of the monsters that are probably the only monster that people kind of believe in, you know. And both Beloved and Candyman are influenced by true stories. Beloved is a story of, it's a haunted house story. It's a very classic haunted house story about a woman who who killed her children, who was a runaway slave and was being pursued by slave catchers. And rather than have her child go back into slavery, um, killed her. And in the book, the ghost or the spirit of that, that dead child comes back and sort of haunts her and haunts this house. Well, that was based on a true story of a woman named Margaret Garner, who was a runaway slave who ran away to Cincinnati and was pursued by slave catchers and killed her daughter um, to save her from being brought back into slavery. And Candyman also kind of has a kernel of truth to it as well. In Chicago, in the Cabrini-Green housing projects, there is this kind of strange anomaly in the architecture in which you could travel and walk through the hallways of buildings and have access to people's apartment buildings through the bathroom cabinet. And in the movie, this sort of kind of boogeyman climbs through the bathroom windows and attacks people with a hook after they say Candyman five times. And in the movie, there is this sort of historical reference to a former slave who had impregnated a white woman and was lynched and therefore has gotten revenge. And that's the boogeyman, that's Candyman. And in reality, there was a woman named uh, Ruth McCoy who was in her apartment building and heard people breaking into the bathroom. And they had access to her bathroom through the bathroom cabinet. They came in, shot her. Um, Before that, she called the police. They didn't come. Her neighbors heard something. They called again. They didn't come. The maintenance people tried to, oh, she asked them to break down the door to her bathroom. They didn't do it. So four days later, the police finally showed up and she was dead from four gunshot wounds. So both of these stories have a mythology around them that was created to tell the story, you know, Morrison's ghost, the boogeyman, Candyman, but their basis, their foundation is through actual real horror and actual real experiences. Right. And you know that Jordan Peele is remaking Candyman and that, yes. and that just that uh, filming just wrapped up. 
horror is often a metaphor for societal anxiety, immigrants coming to take over, or the fear of technology, monsters like Frankenstein or a symbol. But you write that's not the case for Black people. Yeah, the horror is real. <laughs> that's the, and that was the beauty of Jordan Peele's Get Out, is that while there was... Um, this elaboration of the story of this sort of taking over of Black bodies that has its basis in actual truth. And the moments of tension in that movie are real or based on real experiences. The cop car, the police car, following a Black man by himself through in a suburban neighborhood or walking into a room of all white people and the few Black people that you see are sort of oddly subservient and you don't know why and you have no connection to the few Black people are there. That's a very creepy, eerie feeling. So I think unlike Frankenstein or, you know, the giant ants, the atomic age, um, those anxieties that are in Get Out are actual real anxieties that happen every day. It's not a it's not a mysterious boogeyman or an alien. It's real society. <laughs> it's real uh, oppression and real white supremacy. I'm speaking with Leela Taylor. She's creative director at the Brooklyn Public Library and author of the new book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. What are some other Black cultural touchstones for you? What songs, artists, or books do you think of? Um, in terms of art, um, I love Kara Walker's work. Her work with silhouettes. There's something very... Um, sort of traditionally gothic about these um, black silhouettes, but she uses forms of truly horrific imagery of slavery through these black silhouettes that I think are absolutely gorgeous. The movie uh, Ganja and Hess, if people have not seen Ganja and Hess, it's absolutely uh, brilliant. It's um, sort of a vampire story with black characters. And actually probably one of the most important movies, I think, is Night of the Living Dead. And I think people just think of it as just a zombie movie. But this is 1968, and it has a black man who is the hero. He goes into a house of white people, and he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who knows what to do. He's the hero of the day. There's even this scene where he slaps a white hysterical woman, and I just thought that's incredible. And it's 1968. So at the end of the film, and again, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. It's a 50-year-old um, movie. I think that we're true. safe with spoilers. It's <laughs> true. You know, it's Don, and he's defeated the zombies, and he's, you know, he saved the day, and he's walking out. And there are a group of policemen who have been going around shooting zombies all evening. They see him on the porch, and they immediately shoot him. No questions asked. They just immediately assume that he's a monster. And the film goes from being sort of regular uh, film to going into static kind of grainy black and white photos. And it starts looking like photojournalism. It starts looking like newspaper clippings as they take his body and they put it on a pyre, on a fire. And it, again, this is 1968. And it's, so it's not just a zombie movie. It really is a commentary on Black people in America and how they're treated by authority figures. Just by his Blackness alone, he's seen as being, as being monstrous. So on the sort of cultural spectrum between, you know, Toni Morrison's Beloved and Night of the Living Dead, I think we kind of spawn, you mm -hmm. know, all sorts of things, yeah. 
You write that the trauma of slavery and the effects of racism that lead to a permanent state of melancholy, and that's connected to goth as well. Walk us through that. So melancholy is a state of permanent mourning. Unlike mourning, there's a sort of beginning, middle, and end. There's a process that you work through when you've lost something or you've lost someone, and there's healing involved. Well, because of the slave trade, there are scores of lost lives and languages and histories and stories that are completely unknown, you know, that were sort of washed away in the Atlantic and who were sort of taken, names were taken away, uh, families were taken away. All of that sort of was dispersed. And slavery never really ended. It's just sort of changed its name. It's changed its tactics and its forms. You know, it's gone through redlining, the industrial prison complex. So if if there is no clear loss of person or subject and there's no clear end to that loss, you're just sort of in the middle of that mourning. And that's melancholy. It's sort of a mourning without a specific point of reference or without an end. And, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, black people walking around sobbing into their shirt all the time. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that there's this undercurrent of loss, of melancholia that is underneath the surface in blackness because of that, one, the continuation of slavery and the unnamed losses from, from the Atlantic slave trade. One of my takeaways from the book was not only an expanded understanding of Blackness, but a way to process or at least think differently about the terror of racism. How did you come to this place of a goth child to an adult today analyzing American Gothic? I mean, I think there, again, when I was a little, there was, I was always fascinated by sort of the darkness and by those things that are supposed to be scary or the things that are supposed to be repugnant, those things that we're supposed to avoid. And that's always been something that I've been attracted to. And I think being a Black person in America, that's something we are always confronted just by the nature of the systemic racism and the nature of white supremacy in this country. We are always having to look at the dark side. You know, we're always having to be aware of that underbelly, that other people have the privilege of not looking at. Other people have the privilege of just sort of seeing the beauty and the sunshine and the rainbows. Um, but if you're Black, um, you have to confront those things. You have to confront the darkness um, in the country and the darkness in um, our history and our life to survive. Um, so I think there is a commonality between the nature of the Gothic in looking at those things right in the face that we're supposed to avoid and the necessity of looking at those things as a Black person in America. But you say goth is not only morbid. There's romanticism and it's whimsical. What's the optimism you see in Afro-Gothic? I, I think the term Afro-Gothic to me feels a lot like Afrofuturism. It's a way of looking at these things, of the Gothic, through a and, black and Afrofuturism, for those who may not know, reimagining a future with black folk. And that has a lot of Chicago roots here. A lot of Afrofuturism writers are, are based here. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that the romanticism, which is what the Gothic is, it's really sort of dark romanticism. That's what I think Afro-Goth is, is looking at those things through the Black-centered lens. But the joy, I think, of Goth is the, um, the theatricality of it, the artistry of it, the sort of unapologetic drama of Goth is powerful and it's really strong. And I think it's something that the glamour of it, I think, is something that is very, very powerful. That's very powerful and very positive. And I also think that uh, seeing different ways of expressing blackness shows the full spectrum, the full variety in life of people. So, you know, we're not this monolithic, all black people do this and all black people do that. We're all individuals and we all have our own ways of going through the world and expressing ourselves. And I think the goth or gothic is one way of, of doing that, of showing sort of the full spectrum of emotions and full spectrum of artistry and creativity and individuality. And I think there's something very powerful about being uh, sad in public, of mourning and being vulnerable in 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 public and having that vulnerability be a source of strength. Do you think there'll be Afro-Gothic festivals like Afro-Punk has? I hope so. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, if anyone if anyone has the funds to do that, I'm all um I'm there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been speaking with Leela Taylor. She's creative director at the Brooklyn Public Library and author of the new book Darkly. Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Leela, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is great. Southern trees bear a strange fruit. And that's it for today's Reset. We'll be back Monday with a brand new podcast. I'm Natalie Moore for Jen White and the rest of the Reset team. Thanks for making us a part of your day. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here soon. In the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.